Welcome back to the Finding Our Future podcast. This podcast was started in order to spark a global conversation about building the future by educating young people on key business and finance topics. I'm very happy to introduce to all of you the esteemed investor, Stoney Baptiste Blue. Mr. Blue is a venture capitalist active in the field of impact investing. He is the co-founder of Third Sphere, a venture platform that primarily focuses on investing in pre-seed technologies for climate change mitigation and adaptation. He's made it his mission to address climate change through company creation and scale. Mr. Blue, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are you? Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I'm quite well, thanks. Awesome. So let's let's jump right into it. Um, so my generation loves talking about you know, trying to, you know, solve the world's greatest problems and essentially change the world. But what is often missing is the how and the why. I'm here to identify concrete issues that affect us all and viable pathways forward. My first question to you is, you know, what did you study? Because my mother um, always asks and thinks that no matter your chosen career path, a solid liberal arts education will serve you well if you want to navigate the world with grace and competence. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful quote. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, higher education. Um, liberal arts, I think, is, is yeah, it's a valid statement. It's a good balanced um, foundation. I, I also strongly believe in, um, you know, the fundamental sciences as well form a, uh, a good framework and plat platform for thinking. I mean, ultimately, um, what what help what serve what will serve you through the, your career in various careers um, won't necessarily be exactly what you learned or in school per se, um, uh, but the frameworks um, that you learn through those um, uh, through those subjects are are what ultimately serves you, and you can pull frameworks out of any subject really. So um, I think in addition to that, just the discipline and the uh, principles and the other principles and um, muscles that you build uh, getting through a, uh, a higher education um, uh, will, will also serve, serve you uh, and your character going out into the world. And do you think it matters what you specifically study? I mean, is there, if, if I, at the age of 17, 18 years old, I really know, already know that I want to be you know, a venture capitalist, do you think it's important that I necessarily get a degree in finance or does that, does it matter what, how deep I delve into the financial area at a young age, or could I even get a degree in history or philosophy, do you think? Um, well, so yeah, I, this is, a, this is actually a really good example of, um, you know, that it's more important to have, um, you know, character that's developed through um, higher education than the specific topical area. Of course, in venture capital, you ultimately have to um, rely on some math sometimes, and you're working with companies. So there's some level of analysis of uh, company fundamentals, depending on where you're investing or market um, dynamics, depending on what stage you're investing um, that come into play. But Similarly, in some types of investing in some companies, it may be more important to understand uh, the technical um, uh, challenges and uh, and and um, dynamics. And generally, in venture, not everyone is doing everything. Um, of course, 
and so what you bring to the table um, generally will, uh, as part of uh, a venture capital team, will be somewhat unique. Um, so again, I don't think a, a team full of uh, financial professionals is what it takes to make a good venture capital team. It's generally a balance of, you know, technical, um, business operations, financial uh, backgrounds, and even yes, uh, liberal liberal arts such as philosophy uh, backgrounds that make a good investment team. Sometimes you get all of those things in one person. Um, but I think it's it's good that you mentioned philosophy because that's you know that's one area that um, for two reasons we could do for do with more in in, uh, in venture one um, uh, one of the fundamental pillars of philosophy of course is uh, uh, ethics and we certainly um, can't build the future uh, without considering uh, ethical um, considerations which sometimes is lacking in uh, in uh, venture and in, in new technology development. Um, so that's all stuff. That's very important. And, and then, uh, you know, little known, uh, uh, but maybe obvious after the, after, after the fact that venture capital is a very social, um, business where it's all about building relationships. Um, it, it is, uh, uh, uh to some degree, uh, generally re requires you to be, to be social, uh, interact, interact with other people a lot. And, and I say all that because. Uh, philosophers tend to be able to hold good conversation. So it sounds silly, but being a good conversationalist, which sometimes is a, a externality of a liberal, liberal arts education, can actually be a huge asset um, uh, in, in venture capital. Right. So you touched on a lot there. You touched on critical thinking, you touched on networking, and, and you touched on you know, the, the ethical considerations that you know, both an entrepreneur and an investor uh, should make whenever engaging in, in some form of endeavor. Um, I'm curious, what was your first entrepreneur endeavor and what sort of compelled you to start it? Yeah, my, um, well, my first entrepreneur endeavor uh, after high school, uh, I would say, because before then I, I, I've lost track. I experimented with a lot of different entrepreneur um, experiments, but uh, out of high school, I was really just trying to uh, avoid getting a job um, and pay, but but pay for my college education. So I started um, I started a company with the skills that I had, which were in um, you know computer repair and you know servicing of various sorts, and that was my first business. And it really was just like, what resources do I have? Uh, what assets do I have? What do people need or want that I can ch charge money for? And and can I structure it so I'm making enough to stay in school? Um, it, there was not a lot more flavor or <laughs> color to it from there. Um, and, you know, that uh, was an important starting point for me because, um, you know, it helped me, of course, get my feet wet and sort of get my first um, real experience running a, a, a full-time professional sort of business. Um, I also ended up selling that company um, a year or so in. Um, it, I, I did along the way actually end up dropping out of, of school um, at that time uh, to focus on the company because I felt like I was learning a lot more um, in the practice uh, of, of building the company. Um, 
But one of the first two lessons that I learned, uh, well, there were many lessons, but one of them, uh, of course, was the importance of sales and marketing. Uh, and the other was the importance of um, sort of being resourceful. And, and then the third was, of, of course, enjoying what you're doing and having a good reason for doing it. And those are still lessons that serve me every day uh, today and that I still continue to try to, to hone uh, the insights from there. And so focusing more on, on the VC aspect of sides, um, what would you say are the most important things that college students who want to go into VC, as well as entrepreneurs who you know, are obviously at a young age trying to start their own venture firm and are potentially going to collaborate with VC firms, what do you think they should all know about venture capital or the most important things? I think one critical thing that is often missed is that um, venture capital is just one part of a uh, of, of the sort of ecosystem of uh, innovation. Um, and it's not necessarily the most important part. So there is a lot of like um, idolation of venture capital and the industry and the people, um, but it's, you know, venture capital is very far behind um, the actual company builders, the founders who and the early teams who are building the technologies. And um, also uh, in the ecosystem are, of course, the customers and sometimes um, uh, strategic customers who are also investors and um, and so being taking the corporate route uh, per se doesn't necessarily mean you don't get to play in the innovation ecosystem. Um, being a founder is not less than less important or less fun than being a VC or, you know, the, the dynamic is not such that VC is the most important thing you could possibly do if what you care about is solving a problem or tapping innovation or bringing a technology out into the world. There are other roles to play. Uh, and you sometimes through your career career might move through the different sides of the table and the different layers of the innovation uh, uh, ecosystem. Um, I'd say that's that's the one big, big thing that's often missed. Um, probably the second big thing, which is related to the first, uh, doesn't matter where you're starting um, uh, in, in a field, uh, what's more important is who you're working with. And what's underappreciated, well, it's kind of appreciated, but it's uh, in venture, but it's sort of um, a part of historically what's wrong with venture is that it's very much a relationship, uh, who you worked with, who, you know, what school you went to, it's a networks kind of business. Um, And the dark version of that is, of course, exclusionary practices where new people who have talent and all of the right qualities but didn't get, didn't come from the right place, uh, don't get an opportunity. And that's of course broken. Uh, but the, the other side of that coin is, you know, it's a reminder that, uh, you know, the most important thing to prioritize is who you're around, uh, who you're surrounding yourself with. And, uh, if, if, you know, if your interest is in being in the innovation e- economy ecosystem, whether it's venture or elsewhere, uh, and you're trying to figure out an, an A or B decision, wherever you're starting, go with whichever decision puts you uh, with uh, the best possible people you could be working with. Um, and so again, if it's like, do I uh, look for a job in VC or do I w- work at this 
startup that's clearly full of amazing people and I can learn a lot and I can build my network and surround myself with amazing people, I would go with the, the latter. Um, because you can always over time optimize for a specific role and amount of money, et cetera. But early in your career, you should be taking as much risks as possible to, of course, learn as much as possible. But I would say optimize always for being working with uh, great people. Right. No, thank you for, for touching on, on values and people. One thing that I've realized um, or taking on my own set of entrepreneurial endeavors or what I've witnessed um, in other people's endeavors is, you know, the struggle of finding good people to work with. Often we think that you know, just because someone is experienced or just because someone uh, has a similar goal to us or even is, you know, a friend or a family member that they may be the best partner, but that's not always the case. Um, when evaluating companies or founders of companies, and even in, in your own experience, if you were to start a company tomorrow and, and we're looking for a founder, what, what's your criteria of evaluation? What are you, what are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say the first thing, which is more data-driven, um, uh, is you want to, uh, if you're just starting out or if you're starting something new, or if you yourself are not one of these sort of like, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, or at least you don't feel yet that you're one of these, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, these like signaling type of careers. Uh, if you haven't yet built that where, you know, you're uh, Tony Fidel or Steve Jobs or something where it's like, obviously, whatever you start, the best people will want to work with you. If you're going from the other direction, you're you're hoping to find the best people that you can convince to work with you, then you should use data to identify uh, great people who have who tend to work together, right? So people who have worked with other great people is just a, a very great early indicator, right? And it's fairly easy to down to create a short list of people who um, worked very closely with, with other great people who maybe just to reach past your reach, if you think that, um, or are no longer here or whatever. Um, but the people who worked under them, studied under them, worked with them, um, uh, are higher likelihood to be great people because, uh, you know, great people select for working with great people. Right. So someone has already done the job for you of selecting, um, uh, uh potential and talent. And often you, um, you also, you'll be able to find people who have made their own mark. Um, uh, but, but are still, you know, they're, they're still not out of reach, so to speak. Um, and I'd say the second thing is, it, and, and it's in modern times, it's easier than ever. Modern technology makes it such that you can look up if someone is a good or bad person, um, quite easily through whether it's just creeping their social media, uh, and, or looking for places where they are, um, where there's feedback left about them. Um, and again, depending on the industry they're coming from, whether they were a manager uh, and you're looking at Glassdoor to see if people who worked with them or they were a team member um, and you're looking at LinkedIn to see if there are any testimonials or, you know, obviously there's the basics of like just making sure that they don't show up as having ha gotten into any big troubles that indicate really bad character. So what, you're, what I'm suggesting here is you want to filter out bad actors, right? Like I don't care if you uh developed the android uh operating system if you got fired from google for 
you know, uh, misconduct, I, I, you know, I'm not interested in whatever you're building me next because, you know, the two cancel each other out. Right. Uh, so those are the, those are the two, yeah, the two main things. And then of course, like the third is, um, finding a way to actually see if there is a, uh, uh, a, a mission alignment, right. And, and a, uh, a working relationship, a functional alignment, so to speak, at least. Right. Um, and ideally there's a way that you can do that by, um, uh, either, uh, a, you know, uh, offering to help them with something or, um, uh, shaping some low risk interaction where it's the beginning of building the relationship and looking for a few of those sort of low risk interactions to engage together just to see how you get along and to see if you think differently enough to add to each other's thinking, but similarly enough to where you're not clashing, that you can actually assess whether this person can create and do things and they weren't this, their career and their, um, their fame is not, or whatever is not based on the work of others and they, that they just took credit for. Um, I think like having a podcast platform like this is a great example of that, right? Like you can, interview your quote unquote heroes or the people that you think you might want to work with. And you could, that's the beginning of a conversation, uh, where you can start to see how else you could interact and engage with them and learn from them and they could learn from you. And then eventually see like, Hey, let's, let's try to build something together. Um, it's a long game of course. And sometimes you're swept into a faster moving version of that, but I would still check those three boxes, right? Like, you know, uh, is this someone, I mean, even young people, right. Who are in college, someone who is a builder who, you know, works with great people will already have evidence of that from high school projects or endeavors, et cetera. I think those three things are important for other types of relationships as well. As far as tips go, uh, ignore the glamor as much as possible is a, is probably a very valuable one as well. I would add that to my my third uh, pillar of like sort of um, principles or that I, that, that helped me professionally is, uh, you know, beyond who you're working with or surrounding yourself with and how focused you are and persistent and consistent you are in character and in practice and habits. And then the third thing is like not comparing yourself, not, you know, the, 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 the old Testament style, don't covet, don't, be jealous, like as much as you could ignore the glamour and the glitz of what other people are showing, it's also better to help you uh, go forward in life because a lot of it is fake anyway. And um, and there's no such thing as a straight path up. Even some of the truly real glamour has some sort of pitfalls along the way. So everyone's on a journey that's up and down. Um, and so uh, assuming that you just start up and keep going up is a, is a horrible thing to do for yourself because it be demotivating de when you realize how hard it actually is and how even when you think you're making it you're taking 10 steps back or how uh but then the opposite of that is also true right you, the, the, the one of the biggest lessons i learned is you know when you think you've hit a wall and it's the very end and there's nowhere forward uh there's no such thing as negative zero or sorry negative one in progress it, it actually there is a floor and uh, generally, it's a good thing that you've hit zero or close to zero because it means now you're on the way back up. Oh, I just thought of one more like life advice thing that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, it's uh, like I think it's underappreciated how much of success to your point. It's like, you know, people get overconfident often because they discount how much of their success came from luck. 
And, uh, you know, but there, the, the way to think about luck is not just like the very big, obvious things. It's also just looking at all the, the thousands of ways that it, it could have been much worse for you, but it wasn't. Um, and, and looking at the positive of that being like how lucky you are already and really owning that and, uh, tends to, tends to attract more luck your way, acknowledge the role that luck plays in your life. And, uh, and a good way to start is just acknowledging and being grateful for the luck you already have. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're talking really about, you know, sticking to your values and, and essentially just not compromising your values. That, that's really what I'm hearing and being very meticulous with your assessment of, of who you're letting into your, your social circle and work circle. I want to transition more into third sphere. Um, what does the name third sphere mean and what was the long-term vision and, and catalyst behind starting third sphere? So third sphere has a lot of potential sort of meanings and references. The primary one being a reference to the planet. Um, and then of course there are uh, references to third sphere in economics and science. Um, so we kind of liked that it had this, um, flexible and evolving definition because one of the reasons we changed from our original name, Urban Us, to Third Sphere is that we wanted to be expansive and um, have the ability to look beyond what we're currently, the problem we're currently trying to solve. With Urban Us, which is how we started, uh, we were very specifically trying to solve like urban sustainability and resilience in the face of climate change, which is very important. And we did some wonderful work in our first eight years, just narrowly focused on that, but realizing that, you know, um, two things. One, um, the market was evolving such that, you know, being early and one of the few people investing at that intersection was uh, no longer an advantage as more and more investors were starting to recognize the opportunity. So we had to be more expansive. Also, addressing climate change with an urban lens exposes um, uh, uh, one big um, sort of pitfall in the urban dynamics around climate change, which there are all these benefits to density and urbanization, but there's of course also uh, urban wealth, which sometimes can concentrate um, bigger carbon footprints and, and environmental extern negative externalities. So to offset that, you would you have to invest also outside of the urban sphere, if nothing else, to to make sure that the systems up the chain. Uh, including industrial and agricultural, um, are also um, improving. Um, and so we needed to look beyond the urban dynamic and, you know, needed something more expansive to define why we do what we do. And so third sphere as a reference to planet is why. And, you know, to your, to your question, like, what's the long-term vision? Uh, I mean, the, 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 the challenge with any mission-driven work or uh, uh, impact work is that, your existence is somewhat defined by this problem. And so therefore you're almost embedded and entrenched in that problem existing. And so uh, what we are trying to do is remind ourselves that uh, we actually want to solve the problem and we want to put ourselves out of business, so to speak, um, and have other things to work on later, right? Um, there will always be challenges to work on, big things to sort of transform and, and it continue to improve life uh, and life on the planet, et cetera. Um, but, you know, we didn't want to be a climate change VC because that would mean uh, that for you to be relevant, climate change would have to be a persistent problem. And that if climate change is a persistence problem forever, then, uh, you know, we're in, we have bigger problems. Um, and so uh, it was kind of in homage to that 
we want to have a, a, a focus on the planet well beyond solving climate change, which is our ideal um, outcome in the, another uh, 10 to 20 years. Right. And so you, one thing that I saw in my research is you have, Third Sphere has a, a climate startup playbook, which essentially addresses the importance and difficulty of, of choosing a climate problem to solve. Um, could you please elaborate on, on, the, on the challenges there? I mean, because when you think of climate change, it's, you know, there's deforestation, there's urban wealth, there's urban design. Um, there are really a variety of factors taken into account. How do, you, how do you wrestle with that? It really is a matter of what you have um, like access to and what, um, what you value and to some degree in that, you know, if you are interested in um, building a solution that gets out into the world and starts to solve problems immediately uh, and quickly, then there are a lot of areas of climate change that um, are not necessarily the best starting point for you because either the technology is not quite ready yet or the systems change that's necessary is not quite entrepreneurial friendly yet. Um, but if you are interested in sort of long game, larger potential transformational change, um, then on the other side of that spectrum, maybe you do want to work on some of the earlier stage science and tech breakthroughs that are needed to hopefully help us make leaps forward later on. Um, I think both are important, but from an early stage VC perspective, obviously long, super long-term, you know, uh, scientific moonshots are exciting, but they can't define an entire fund. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think as an entrepreneur, you could certainly still build um, a, uh, you can build a company that has these sort of long-term moonshot ambitions, but, you know, you of course are going to have a certain um, type of uh, investor uh, that, that you're, that you, you need to talk to um, uh, that can, you know, sort of fund you for a long-term expedition. Um, so again, like, I think uh, if you read the playbook, you can see that like climate is, can be confusing for most people and thinking about like, where do I, where can I actually help to solve the problem? But, you know, at the end of the day, so much of what we do uh, in, in almost everything that we do touches and has an externality around the planet and the long-term sustainability of life on the planet. And so, um, you know, it really is a matter of knowing yourself and then really seeing what problems uh, that are near you, that you, that you um, have a, uh, access to understanding and, uh, and then what timeline of, uh, of a career you want to build. Right. I right, know. Thank you for, for elaborating on that. I appreciate it. But, um, one thing that jumps, jumped out at me when I was researching for portfolio companies were two companies wasted, which, uh, I'm, seems to focus primarily on transforming portable toilet waste. And then I also found aquagenuity, which evaluates the water quality, um, and so my question is, you know, how do you, why did those two, I don't know if, if you were heavily involved in the selection of those two companies specifically, but when evaluating companies in general, and I'm going to use, just use those two as an example, um, what was the thinking behind, eval uh, behind deciding to invest in those two companies? How do you, what was your vision and why do you think that they meaningfully impact the environment and, and climate among you know, compared to other companies that you may have um, been approached by or, you know, been considering to invest in, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a very, like, complex question to answer. Of course, there's a lot that goes into diligencing a company um, and making a 
like you're not investing and um yeah i mean i would and then even even between these two it's uh completely different reasons and motivations and thinking and that that went into sort of making the decision to invest i would say just high super high level um aquagenuity was uh, probably a combination i mean i guess in both cases it's kind of like some level of um of course it has to fit our thesis and the markets has to seem large enough and um and then the offering has to um sort of be at a stage that we think we can be helpful and that we can create value and um and increase that value for our investment and that's sort of the business of venture um and then for uh, like actual selection of, of, of the team to work with, because we sometimes see a similar idea or whatever. Um, what we're looking for there is, like I mentioned earlier, in picking people to work with, we're looking for any indication that this is a person who um, can actually build and can get out there and create things in the world and not, that, not necessarily an engineer, but can build relationships or gather resources or, um, uh, you know, all sorts of different versions of, of, of building, but in their own uni unique way, in a sense, right? They, they leave an impression that these, this is a unique team, often based on previous things that they've accomplished in, uh, in other fields even. Um, so in both cases, I can point to uh, um, uh, both of the founding teams of those teams, of those companies being uh, good examples of just like, you can look up their background and what they were doing before this, and you could be impressed. And then the second thing is, and it's somewhat, um, an expected outcome of having a unique and interesting and uh, accomplished background is that they are approaching the problem in a unique way. And so, uh, you know, with Aquagenuity, it was bringing in brands um, to the consumer experience of uh, water quality and trust um, by, by um, um, lending the trust of a brand to um, uh, uh, water quality assessment and uh and then in the case of wasted it was uh you know rethinking waste in a way that makes it part of a value chain instead of a uh a human waste in a way that it's part of a value chain and not a waste chain um and solving a huge problem that we have with uh fertilizer and land management um and so uh yeah i mean i think it's it's very nuanced but i guess those are two big ingredients outside of the standard um, assessments of a, of a deal, so to speak, is uh, the team and their background and how exciting it would be to work with them. And, and, uh, and then secondly, is the approach unique and distinct enough where, you've, where it felt like um, it could actually make a meaningful dent in the problem while creating real enterprise value and being weird and different enough that, that the competition would at least be too confused uh, for a little while. A couple of years ago, I, I came across um, a scientist and an author, a Danish author named uh, Bjorn Lomberg. And he, the way that I came across him was because he published a book named uh, How to Spend $75 Billion to Make the World a Better Place. I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with it, but essentially he discusses and goes over um, something titled the Copenhagen Consensus Project, um, of whom he's your president, where essentially a variety of experts and economists uh, got together to sort of evaluate, you know, how to best allocate capital towards solving, you know, the top 10 or top 12 biggest problems in the world. Um, and obviously, when, when talking about capital, especially in, on a, an entrepreneurial and venture capital perspective, you know, investors, you know, they want to make a return. And I think that most people, when they think about 
you know, climate change, they don't think about it as something that could be a profitable endeavor. Um, they just think about, you know, improving the, the fauna and flora. But obviously, that's as you're a venture capitalist, that's, that's not your case. Um, how do you manage the expectations of, of other investors if, you know, an investment or a certain plan doesn't actually go as expected? Yeah, I mean, I think the the um, discussion, the debate has matured and it's come, become quite easier. And um, in part because there's already so much sort of capital commitments going into climate and uh, both spending from government as well as investments already going in. So it's easier to make the argument when the crowd is already throwing money into the sector. But even beyond that, the other big motivator and uh, indicator that there is quote unquote money to be made in climate is the disasters that we've experienced in the last few years at increasing rates, I would say in the last 20 years, um, it's like once in a hundred year disasters happening every year or so um, at an increasing cost uh, in the trillions of dollars over time. And so you can't find anyone in the world now who can honestly say that that, that they don't see that the uh, that the uh, weather system is causing um, massive damage at a massive cost. And uh, the other side of that trillion dollar coin is an investment opportunity. That's the case with anything where there's massive loss, someone else is positioned to, there's almost a universal conservation law of money. Uh, if, if there's loss on one side, there's probably an opportunity to gain on the other side. So if you don't believe in anything else, look at the amount of money lost in floods and fires and ask yourself who's making money on the other side of that. It's likely to be people creating the solutions. And so when working on, on, a, on a certain investment and, you know, working with a, with a group of founders from a startup and once that investment's been finalized, what is the, what is the procedure like in terms of mentoring when you're working with these founders and, and those teams? What does that look like? What are the tactics that you go over to maximize their success, if, if we could call it that? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, a very nuanced thing, company to company, like you could, you know, we've had frameworks for, uh, for a period, we ran an accelerator with BMW Mini, where there was a sort of standard multiple week sort of, uh, you know, exposure to various aspects of like, make sure your company is doing this or that, um, which works when you're starting with very brand new companies exclusively, which is that was where we did our earliest stage investing was through that program. But when you're investing even anywhere at some variance past the sort of day zero, you're just going to find companies with different capacities, different, you know, different um, uh, pathways um, and progress points. Right. And so having a standard, you know, I'm going to sit down and tell you how you should build your company is kind of a ridiculous thing to assume that you know better than the person who's on the ground how to build their company. And cer certainly there's standards like here are pitfalls that you want to avoid that um, uh, what we try to do is make sure that we at least teach our founders um, how to communicate with investors so that investors are let made aware of progress, but also opportunities to help. And that's probably the most standard thing that we try to instill. Um, and the reason for that is that the real value add that we think that an investor can offer is to open up their network. And so understanding where companies are running into challenges, um, uh, obviously there's some, some opportunities to directly respond to those challenges with insights from whatever experience you've had personally, professionally, 
but then often it's and more often it's an, an introduction that you can make right or that we can make and so um, of course there's a whole other discussion around how to build a network to, to source introductions from um, and that's something we've also focused the last 10 years on building and obviously our previous our network before uh, uh, third sphere contribute contributed to seeding that um, pool of, of, of talent and people that we can refer startups to, to, to address specific things or find new customers, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the main thing is to, to understand about, v, you know, VC in that context, the value add is it really is, a, it, it's even more so a relationship business. It's about putting the right people together at the right time, whether it's via email or if you want to, you know, higher touch, uh, more involved, a lot of VC platforms host dinners, connect, putting the right people in the right, in the same room at the, at the right time or co large conferences as their main way of adding value. But it all comes back to how do you connect the right people to each other at the right time. And so, you know, when, when you're working with these entrepreneurs, uh, I'm assuming you're working with people from, from all around the world. And earlier on uh, in our discussion, you mentioned you know, not compromising your values and being, you know, very careful of not compromising your ethical uh, and moral compass, I, I suppose you could say. Um, do you ever encounter any cultural ethical obstacles um, as you're working with different teams? I mean, there's one, I, I guess one easy answer is there is the um, constant flow of new companies interested in working with us, uh, which is great. And but they have various levels of sensitivity around um, what they like to share. And so and, and obviously and, and of course, we also have sensitivities around what we can share um, about existing companies as well. So in venture, uh, there's a lot of information management that has to be sensitive to confidentialities. So but um, two main ways, examples of this is um, uh, you know, meeting a company that's doing something similar to an existing company. Well, what we try to do is right up front, make this clear. If they weren't aware that we have a similar investment and before we dig in, we'd probably want to make sure that there isn't a conflict that both sides feel like there's no conflict. So that's one example. Um, and, and then the other is, uh, um, it, it's sort of a corollary. Sometimes a, a company will introduce themselves and ask for an NDA before they'll share more. In venture, that's quite difficult to agree to because you see so many things. You're going to break an NDA every other day of the week um, because of the discussions you have internally, et cetera. So we don't typically sign NDAs. Um, and that uh, then we put it back in the ball, back in the court of the founder if they want to continue the discussion. So I'd, I'd say as a baseline, there's a constant information management, uh, ethical uh, dynamic to venture that, that to keep in mind. There are many other ethical things around like, um, you know, uh, uh, how to treat founders, of course, and, uh, you know, and then of course it is an organization, how to treat each other. Um, I mean, ethics is, are unavoidable in interacting with people and, and with yourself, et cetera. But, um, I'd say an easy example of, uh, of having a good moral and ethical compass and practices in place is around information management. Right. And regarding, again, this concept of effective networking, which you keep bringing up, um, a lot of people seem to struggle with that in, in today's society, especially from a young age, you know, when people say you have to be a good networker and in life, it's not about what you know, but more who you know. Do you, do you have any advice and sort of, you know, keys as to what it takes to being a good networker? 
Um, yeah, I would say uh, start by networking within a very specific uh, topic area uh, that you are actively uh, building in or want to be building in. And so I wouldn't go to networking events as defined by like business card exchanges or um, generic, very random broad cocktail hour type of things. Certainly you can do those for fun and for free drinks, whatever. Um, but I would say you're much, if you're a software developer, you're much better off networking at a hackathon. Um, if you're, you know, a video gamer, you're better off networking at a, a video game conference or a competition um, uh, as easy examples, right? So, and then the more niche and specific you can get, it actually can be better, especially in those initial stages, because you'll find other people just as just as excited about that topical area and that you have that alignment with that, then you could expand out and see future intersections or just the expansion of their network into broader other industries, et cetera. So whoever is in your network, you're, you're also by extension through them, um, uh, you're exposed to their broader network. And so it's not, you don't, you don't necessarily need to start off building a broad network. You can start off building a very niche network. Um, to start and then seeing from you, the direction of your interest shifting, um, uh, who from your previously niche network can help you expand to a more broad network. And then obviously as your interests change and, and, um, and expand your, your network then starts to look very broad. And ultimately the, the reason I mentioned broad networks is that, that those like weak link broad network type of topographies are where you get the most value. Um, uh, generally on a professional basis, obviously on a personal basis, it's the inverse. The few closest people are where you get the most value, but in professional, it's generally, uh, uh the, uh, the other way, um, uh, the, the loose network is where you extract the most value. So I have, uh, two or three more questions before, uh, before we finish this off. Um, this one has to do more with, with goal setting, which I believe is, is extremely important, especially, I mean, and this, this applies to all ages, but particularly um, when you're, you know, in your late teens and, you know, in your early college years and you're starting to plan out your life, um, how do you go about setting long-term goals for yourself? And then as a parallel to that, where do you hope to take third sphere within the next, you know, let's say five to 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily believe in setting long-term goals. Okay. Interesting. Um, as which may be shocking. Um, I believe in setting, um, uh, you know, maybe annual, maybe three-year goals, but it's less about like, what do I want to do? Uh, you know, uh, when I think of long-term goals, it's less about what do I want to happen in three years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever. And it's more, what do I want to not have stopped happening? Or basically what do I want to not have quit at the end of that timeline? And so, for example, if you like, if you're starting school, right, your four year goal, yes, it could be obviously get the degree, right? But the other way to think about getting the degree is not not dropping out, right? And uh, because at the end of the day, uh, you may actually change the degree that you want or, you know, um, your ambition level around, you know, are you going to be valedictorian or not? And all of that, you know, along the way could feel like failure. But at the end of the day, it's not because again, college and higher education is all about getting through it, ideally with the best people 
and ideally with the best mental training you can get and character building you can get. But it doesn't matter what pathway you take to get there, even if it means changing subjects, even if it means not being at the very top of the class, th those things matter much less than actually just getting it done. Um, and even getting it done could be a goal that changes. But if you are setting a goal, then not dropping out is like a big important one, right? And I think similarly, like what, you know, when I think about third sphere, it's less, okay, where is third sphere in 10 years or 20 years? And it's more like third sphere will exist and will definitely be further along than it is now in 10 or 20 years or whatever. Um, and, you know, and then corollary to that 20 years out, ideally climate change is such a solved known thing that we're working on something else. Right. So it's not just like, what am I quit? What am I not quitting? It's also, what am I done by then? What have I, uh, like sort of moved on from by then is also a good way to think about long-term goals. I think short-term goals, you know, quarterly or even annually goals you could set. And just as long as you can set something, I think on your calendar that builds a habit and then ultimately you don't even need it on your calendar because it's a habit. Um, those are fine goals to set at a more fixed defined measurable, um, uh, state, but setting measurable goals many years out with all of the ma many, many variables and randomness and everything else that will get in the way is a recipe for feeling like a failure constantly. Cause the goalpost is going to keep changing and life's going to keep throwing maybe better goals at you that make you feel like, um, bad because you're leaving the old goals behind, but that's not the, the, I, in my opinion, a good framework for life is not about, um, feeling bad about changing your goals. Um, but I will say that the reason I take this approach of like, what don't I want to quit and what do I want to move on from by then is that, you know, um, similar to sort of my thinking that it's most important thing is surrounding yourself with, uh, with the right people. The second most important thing is consistency. It's not giving up, uh, consistency and persistence. It's staying, uh, focused. And I like the word moral compass because I do think of life as, a uh, you know, like you're, it's sort of an inverse comp, uh, to succeed in life is sort of, uh, to be an inverse compass where instead of everywhere you move, your compass is changing. Um, you're a fixed compass and where you're pointing is where the world eventually moves. Um, and if you can live a life where you're the fixed compass, your morals don't shift. What you're working on isn't shifting as much. Um, uh, and what you care about is not shifting as much eventually the, the direction of the world aligns with your compass. And that's quite a magical thing to experience. I love that. That's uh, that's uh, that was a very beautiful ending. And I, uh, I completely agree with you. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that perspective. It's many people often, especially on, on YouTube or Instagram, will, will preach the importance of a, of a setting goals for yourself, which, which obviously is of course important, but I definitely uh, enjoyed your perspective. Um, one thing that I did discover um, while I was researching you was that you're really uh, into Muay Thai. How did you get into Muay Thai and, and how has that helped your life? Yeah, I, uh, I've always been interested in martial arts. Um, I've always dabbled, uh, you know, dropped in and dropped out since my teens even. Never, um, never took it beyond passing interest um, and fun. And uh, I think, you know, one of the lessons, in spite of it being a persistent interest of mine, um, one of the lessons that I, I finally absorbed is that, you know, convenience um, is one of the best recipes for building a habit. And so, um, honestly, I chose Muay Thai because it was, uh, there was a Muay Thai gym right across the street from where I was living at the time. 
Um, and so I knew that no matter what, what excuse I might have for being persistent, um, the excuse could never be lack of access. I mean, it was literally right there. All I had to do is throw on my gear and cross the street. So I, that's another good lesson in building habits, which is, you know, again, going back to building goals, I think it's more important to build habits. And, uh, and then the insight there is, you know, make, make the habit easy for you to build, um, move closer to a gym, um, or sign up for the gym right next to you or build a gym in your garage or whatever, or start doing whatever thing is closest to you. And Muay Thai, it turns out was a great thing to be close to and to, um, and to make my, my chosen martial art going forward because it's really easy to sort of gear, gear up for it um, and to ramp up into it. Um, it, it there, there isn't, um, at, there is, it's not necessary to have a ton of depth to, 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 to extract value out of Muay Thai, uh, other martial arts. It, 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 it's both, um, uh, you know, uh, it's valuable and, but almost also necessary to have all this depth, you know, like all the frameworks and the, building up to being able to do something practical and interesting whereas in muay thai um you don't get a lot of that artistic colorful history per se but you get practical fun healthy uh, very quickly very immediately and of course there is depth there but it's not it's an after glow and after effect versus the the uh, a gating a gating point and so that's why i've appreciated muay thai and i i um i use it obviously for health uh physical health um uh it's just great you know, sort of um, strength and cardio, but it's also a great mental exercise. And there's no, um, there that you can't go through an hour of Muay Thai lessons um, with your mind wandering for even a second, because it, it obviously can be quite dangerous, but also quite frustrating um, uh, if you let your mind wander. So it's a great way to also exercise the mind um, and to uh, uh, and to somewhat escape from the things that you're constantly wandering your mind and concerned about or whatever. And Muay Thai really is like the, the immediate next uh, punch or kick or whatever um, is, is what's important at that specific second. And I've appreciated it for that. As a, as a competitive squash player myself, I can certainly attest that uh, sports in general definitely do provide a, obviously a tremendous amount of health benefits, but just a great sense of uh, ability to develop focus and resilience and just a general sense of serenity. Um, I, I probably walk off the court a bit less bruised than you do, but close enough. <laughs> I try to avoid getting kicked and punched as best I can. So um, my agreement with Muay Thai is uh, to not, not get too injured over the years, which so far I'm doing decently. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, Mr. Blue, I really enjoyed my time with you today. Uh, before we finish, do you have any parting words of advice that you'd like to give our, to our listeners? Uh, just keep listening. Great. Uh, this, this podcast uh, has been fun. Uh, the questions are great. Um, I'm sure you'll have other great, you have and will continue to have other great discussions. So kudos to you. Um, and uh, yeah, look forward to continuing the conversation offline. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. And uh, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.